Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Write its truths on our hearts. Be glorified in this. We sincerely ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe this will be part one of a two-part series on this passage And today is by way of background so that next time we can really dive deeply into the text. My eldest son, David, was attending a Christian school and he came home one day and asked me, Dad, can a Christian lose his salvation? Can a Christian lose salvation? I said, no, not a genuine Christian, no. He then said, well, my school teacher says... You can. They can. They can lose salvation. I said, well, what was the argument? My son was about eight or nine years old. I said, what did the teacher say? And the teacher apparently said, Judas was a genuine believer but ended up in hell. Therefore, uh, you can lose salvation. I then said to my son, well, I agree, agree. He did end up in hell, but I don't believe he was a genuine believer in Christ. Now, knowing that that's what was taught at the school, me having an Irish mother and a Welsh father means I'm a passionate person, and I felt like just driving down to the school and saying, what, with a capital W, what are you teaching my kid? Um, I could rant and rave, and I thought that's a possibility, but I calmed myself down, had a cup of English tea, and uh, went to the computer. I stayed calm, and uh, I wrote a letter to the teacher. And I cited every mention of Judas in the New Testament. And that's all I did. I just listed the text regarding Judas. I then asked David to go to school the next day and hand that letter to the teacher, which he did. Then 
The teacher read it, the letter, and contacted me, and to my surprise and to my delight, she thanked me, it's a lady, and um, said, you were right uh, to, because I said I don't believe he was a genuine Christian. She said, you were right, and she got up the next day to her credit and told the class, I was wrong about that. Praise the Lord. She looked at the scriptures and realized Judas was never a true believer, and praise the Lord for that. Now, Jesus made it very clear he was never a true disciple. Let me quote John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That kind of ends the discussion, doesn't it? (laughs) Jesus made it clear that Judas was never a true disciple. Now, here's the point. Even though he was an apostle, he was an apostle, and he had a successful preaching ministry, and a successful healing ministry. Jesus had given them authority as his apostles to cast out demons, heal the sick, and all 12 were about that task, and all 12 were doing it very, very well. No one was coming to Jesus and say, hey, no one gets healed when Judas is praying for people. No, he was doing great. I want to make this point. Someone can be very, very involved in Christian ministry and not be a genuine Christian, a genuine follower of Christ. And we think, how can that be? Case in point, Judas. There is such a thing as a false convert, false professors. They profess Christ, but they don't know Christ. We have to have that category in our minds. And as we look at this text, as we will be going to it eventually, I want to walk through some components that will help us approach this text to make sense of it. We have to have that category in our minds. There is such a thing as a false convert. There are people that profess Christ, but don't possess Christ. They profess faith, but they don't possess faith. May I say, in light of all this, it really matters who you and I listen to. It really matters whether, it, whether it's a school teacher or a pastor. It really matters where you go to church. Paul Washer once said this, don't look for the nearest church to your house. Find the church closest to the Bible. Amen, amen and amen. The Bible has many human authors but one divine author. And because God is the author, it means that there's a consistency in Scripture. The Bible, would you agree with this, the Bible does not contradict itself. As I've delved into the Scripture since uh, the time I was a teenager, I've found that to be the case. There have been times when I think, well, that looks like a contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction. But the more I studied, I realized, oh, that's how you resolve that apparent contradiction complexity, that apparent contradiction, and I can stand before you and say, I don't believe there are any legitimate contradictions in the Bible, and it's born out of the fact that God is the author. There are many human authors capable of error, being human, but God superintended the authors so that what they wrote was breathed out by God. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So the Bible has many authors, but one divine author, and there's a consistency in Scripture, and I want to make this point, that's why we're called to study it. Because we study to find the consistency. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, and that is the basis for, that's the foundation for our study of the Scripture. Or else, if that's not the case, we may as well just throw up our hands and say, no one can make sense of the Bible. No. A thousand times no. We study to show ourselves approved by God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the Word of God. And as we study the Bible, we realize there are not contradictions. Our doctrine, hear this, should be able to handle any text of Scripture. When it comes to this particular issue of whether a Christian can lose salvation, some people think, well, I've got my texts, and you've got your texts, and it's a kind of battle of dueling verses. My text versus yours. I think I've found texts that say you can lose salvation, and someone else says, I say we've found texts that say the opposite. Well, I want to say this, the Bible is consistent. And so one of those are true, and I don't want to have just preferred verses. I prefer my verses rather than your verses. No, I want to embrace all Bible verses, because all the Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And each of us should be biblically informed, and that should be the template that allows us to embrace all that Scripture teaches. I don't want to believe something because it's my preference or my heritage, or I just want to be a certain thing. I want to be able to embrace every verse in the Bible, because I believe God has given us a Bible that is consistent. Let's go to John chapter 6. We may be back to Hebrews. We may. No promises. That's unusual because we normally get in the text and stay in the text, but I'm preparing us for the text, if that makes sense. John chapter 6. I'd like us to see some words. These may may be familiar to you. But John 6 is the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. People were mightily impressed by that. And... A number of people, the crowd, made a profession of faith. Look at verse 14. John 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, they're making a profession, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. That's quite a statement. Quite a profession. This is him. We're not waiting for anyone else. This is him. Look at just what he did. He's obviously, he is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. There's one who's coming, this is him. As we continue reading, Jesus then walks on water, verse 16 onwards, but we're going to pick up the theme as he then directs their attention to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and speaks of himself as the bread of life. And let's look in verse uh, 32, Jesus then said to them, that's this crowd, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We love what you're doing. Uh, we, We love this kind of miracle. Do this every day. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In other words, the bread was a picture pointing forward to Jesus and the story here, not the bread. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous terms. Verse 36. But I said to you, who's the you? The crowd. Who's the crowd? Professors. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Wow. Jesus didn't buy into their so-called faith. They made a profession and Jesus said, but I'm not buying it. You're not believers. Can you believe that's in your Bible? Most churches, you say, he's indeed the one who's come into the world. he's, He's everything. They say, wow, what a genuine Christian. Jesus wasn't buying it. We've got to have that category in our minds that there is such a thing as a false professor. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now this speaks of the Father in eternity giving a group of people to the Son as a gift. He gives them to Jesus. And Jesus' statement is that all, not some, not 80%, not 33% on a bad day, but all that the Father gives me, look at this, will come to me. So in eternity past, the Father gives this group to the Son, and then in time, all of them will come to the Son. I'm not making any statements that's not derived from the text here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The word election is not in the text, but that's what it's talking about. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Father gives a group to the Son in eternity past, who in time will come to the Son, and then the Son says... They will come, and whoever comes, I'll never cast out. That's assurance of salvation. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a will, and it's the Son's intent to do the will of the Father. Now again, I think... If I was to ask all of you, can you imagine Jesus failing to do the Father's will? I cannot. So when he says, I'm here to do the will of the Father, and then he explains what the will of the Father is, I think we should just take note of that and say, he's going to do the will of his Father. Would you agree? Let's continue reading. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it, that's the entire group, up on the last day. So the will of the Father for the Son is that I, Jesus, should lose nothing of all that the Father gives to him, but raise the entire group upon the last day. So right there, you've got strong, unbreakable promises in the form of that's the will of the Father for the Son that he lose none of all that God has given him. All that the Father gives him will come to him and of all that God gives him, Jesus says, it's the will of my Father, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, 
and believes in him. Looking and believing, synonymous terms. Looking to believe in him. Looking and believing in him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. So what is true of the group is true of the individual. As someone looks on the Son and believes in him, they have eternal life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Not, I'll, I'll raise most of them up, but it's up to them. No, I will raise him up individually and all of the group up on the last day. This, this went down really well, as verse 41 says. So the Jews grumbled about him. It's a word that sounds like what it is, gungazmu. It just sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? In Greek, it's gungazmu. Stop gungazmuing. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Well, they hadn't got past the first statement, let alone all the it said then. They said, is this not Jesus? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not gungasmu among yourselves. Do not grumble among yourselves. Look at verse 44. No one, that's a universal negative, can. Notice the word can. It speaks of ability. No one is able No one can. Now, we all know the difference between the word can and the word may. Can speaks of ability. May speaks of permission. I'm sure you had the same class teacher. I've heard others refer to this as well. Where you're in the class and you ask, uh, Miss, sir, can I sharpen my pencil? Don't know if they have pencils anymore, but... Stay with me. And the usual answer of the same teacher I'm sure you had as I had is, I'm sure you can. The question is, may you? And they were explaining the difference between the ability. I'm sure you have the ability to sharpen the pencil. So I've said, can I sharpen my pencil? And the teacher says, well, I'm sure you can. The question is, may you? And yes, you may. Hopefully that's the scenario. So we know the difference between permission and ability. And here, in verse 44, it's not speaking about permission, it's speaking about ability. No one has the ability, can, come to me. Well, that's bad news, because if the sentence stopped there, we can't be saved, because we've we've actually got to come to Christ to be saved. Thankfully, it's not the end of the sentence, but grasp the magnitude of this, no one can come to me. Those are the words of Jesus. No one has the ability to come to me. That's man in his natural state. No one has the ability to come to Jesus. Thankfully, there's another word in the sentence, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, we cannot come to Jesus unless the Father acts, unless the Father who sent the Son draws him. And this is what we call the effectual calling of God. It's effectual drawing, unlike the calling of a dog owner at the park when the dog just runs off and says, hey, come back, and the dog ignores every plea. That's an ineffectual call. This is a call that is Effectual. It brings the dog back. It brings the saints home. It brings the saints all the way to glory. Look at this. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Oftentimes when this verse is quoted, two-thirds of the verse is quoted, but it behoves us, behooves us to embrace the entire text. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. In the original language, The two hymns are very close together. There's no way you can put a separation. They speak of the same person. It literally reads like this. The Father who sent me draws him, and him I'll raise up on the last day. That's how it reads. So think about this. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and him I'll raise him up on the last day. So such is the effectual draw of the Father that it draws the person to Christ, and then Christ raises him up on the last day. No one falls through the cracks. Everyone who's drawn in this way comes to Jesus and is raised up by Jesus on the last day, which speaks of having everlasting life. Ladies and gentlemen, that speaks of a powerful Savior. Not a weak and effectual Savior. Can you imagine Jesus just apologizing and say, look, this was the best I could do. I know we've got a lot here, but there's so much more we could have done if I could have only bent their will more. No, not at all. And he continues, verse 45, for it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The drawing involves the hearing and learning of the Father, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I love that statement because some people, they're so mind-boggled by the doctrine of election, they say, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Here's the answer. Believe on the Son. And if you believe, you have eternal life. Walk through the door of salvation. Over the door it says, whoever will may come. You walk through and you look back over the door as you've walked through and it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. I thought it was me that got myself in. No, uh, you got in in spite of you. And you walked through the door of salvation, the door being Christ himself, because you were chosen to do so. And that's why we preach the gospel. And people that respond, they may never heard of the word election, but it's like a family secret. You get in and you realize, this was all planned. He he wanted me here. It's not like you respond and he says, oh no, not Mildred. Oh, I've got to now cope with her for eternity. He loved you. He set his love on you in eternity past And the Father drew you to Him with cords of love because He always wanted you. And look at the price He paid to get you. It's unfathomable for all eternity. And there's never a verse in the Bible where it explains why He loved us. All we know is this. It was not because of anything in us. It's true of Israel. We get it with Israel. Yeah, uh, God chose them. He said he set his love on them. And he said, it's not because you are this or that. You're better than the others. I just set my love on you. That's what he's done for you. This is slightly exciting when we realize this. Let's go down to verse uh, 63 for the sake of time. It is the Spirit who gives life. 
the flesh is no help at all. The King James Version renders it this way, the flesh profiteth nothing. Martin Luther said of that, that little word, profits nothing, is not a little something. It's nothing. The flesh is no help at all. It profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, he repeats what we saw in verse 44. He, he said, that is, this is why I told you that no one can, speaking of ability again, come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. There it is. Now, with all this, there was a discourse about the bread and there's a lot we could go into about that, the eating the flesh, drinking the blood and all of that. And then this message about election... Those two things are high on the list of things that people do not like. Look at verse 66. After this, what is this? Everything Jesus had said. Many of his disciples, now I would say so-called disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, seeing them walk away, didn't do what some people do run after them and say, hey, 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 there'll be more miracles next week. Will you come back? Won't you? Won't you? Won't you? We'll be selling bicycles? No, we're not. We're actually going to give them away. Come back next week. Well, they didn't have bicycles, but there we go. Just come back. Here's the draw card. No, they walked away because they heard his message, didn't like it, and didn't want to stick around. You see... The true Christian wants to know the true Christ and embrace the real words of Jesus and no matter what, say, well, that's all I want. I want to know you, the true Jesus, and I'm not walking away because I want you. Amen. So Jesus said to the twelve, run after them, see what they'll come back to. Is that what your Bible reads? No, he turns to the twelve, he says, are you going to go away too? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no one else out there. There's no one else we want. We want you. We want your words. Your words are words of eternal life. We're still here. We're sticking around. That's what we call the perseverance of the saints. Amen. Amen. I'm sticking around because there's nowhere else I want to go. You've got the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Wow. Do you realize what we just read? We read right here of former professors walking away. Former professors apostatizing. You ever heard that word? They apostatize. They walk away. Again, see it in your Bible. They professed faith, but they walked away. Jesus never saw them as true believers. He could have, but he didn't. He said, you've made a profession, that's it. You're in. No, he says, you don't believe. Verse 36. Contrast Judas with Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus, 
Peter denied him, but Peter came back because he was the real deal. A genuine believer who fell into sin. Judas never came back. Let's go on in the Gospel of John to chapter 8. Jesus had words that I'm sure went on the refrigerators of the Pharisees. Especially verse 44. Oh, what wonderful words. John 8, 44. Jesus looking at people right in the face. Here are his words to them. Again, I don't think they ended up on the refrigerators. Not that they had refrigerators. Here we go. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Love your messages. I don't think uh, that's a verse that will fly at Joel Osteen's church. There we go. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So these are unbelievers. Very clear. They're of their father, the devil, Jesus said. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, look at this next statement. I remember reading this and think, is this, is this just a bad translation? And Now, every translation I went to, it said similar words. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, stop there for a moment, let our ears prick up. Jesus is about to explain their unbelief. Are you ready for his answer? Are you ready for what he reveal here? I know from my own heart, I had a hard time with this till I realized, it's like petting a cat. If you do it the wrong way, you're upsetting the cat. Turn the cat around and the cat will like it. I had to turn my life around, my thinking around, to like this. <laughs> Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is, are you ready? That you are not of God. They were upset by this, as... Many are with the doctrine of election, especially when he says, you're not of God. They were the representatives of God. They were the Pharisees. They were standing in the place of God teaching on his behalf. And Jesus said, you can't hear what I'm saying because you're not of God. Jesus had made it clear. Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory, and so it goes on. Let's go to chapter 10. Let me make this statement. Goats never become sheep. Sheep never become goats. Now, you may only find out you're a sheep when you're age 59 or 72 or 17, or 8, when you come to Christ. But you were a sheep all along. That's why we believe in evangelism. It's the roundup of the sheep. And in church history, this understanding that God has an elect people fueled the missionary movement across the world. 
There's no doubt. That's just a fact of history. The idea was this. When we read the book of Revelation, it says that around the throne will be people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. So there must be elect sheep in all those tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. Let's go out and round them up. Some people say if you believe in divine election, it just is like this terrible blanket over the enthusiasm to evangelize. No, it's the exact opposite. There are lost sheep that we need to reach. They need to hear the gospel and they'll hear it and they'll come. And they're guaranteed to come. They're guaranteed. You and I can't mess this up. If I didn't believe this, I wouldn't sleep at night. Lord, they didn't respond in the service. Could I have told the story better? Did I... Did I do something wrong? Did, I didn't play on their emotions enough. No. I can just let the word of God fly and the sheep will hear his voice. Christ's sheep will never be offended by Christ's voice, said C.H. Spurgeon. Tell it like it is. Preach the word. You see, if we're after a crowd, we can hire some big name musician and say 5,000 show up and We say, come on Sunday, we can start with 400. But we're not after that, we're after a church. And for it to be a true church, Jesus has to build the church and he's doing it by means of his word and the sheep will love it. You say to some people, what's the big draw at King's Church? Well, kind of verse by verse, expositional preaching. Well, yeah, what else? No, that's it. So what do you got for them? Well, verse 8 this week, and what do you got next week? Verse 9. And the sheep say, that's it! That's what I... Oh, the words of my master! I want to know what he says! I don't, want to, I don't want anything else. Just tell it like it is. Tell the word of God. Speak it. Reveal what it says. In, yeah, that, that, that's it. I, that, that's it. Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. God uses means to achieve his ends. See, some people think if God's got ends, we don't need means to achieve the ends. And they say if there's this thing called election, we don't need to evangelize. No, no. Election is the fuel for evangelism. Let's say this. Say that God will say of you, you're going to live to be 95 years old. All right? It's a possibility, right? 95 years old. Do you realize there will be means to that happening, like you sleeping, like you eating, like you getting enough nourishment, like you drinking enough water? You don't just say, I'm not going to take any water because I'm just going to live to 95. No, there are means. And God uses means to achieve his ends. What are his ends? The end is all the sheep coming home, wagging their tails behind them. All the sheep coming into the fold. The means is prayer and the proclamation of the word of God. Romans 9 is all about God's electing purposes. Romans 10 follows it. It's not like Paul had this long eight-month sabbatical between chapter 9 and chapter 10 and forgot what he wrote in chapter 9 when he wrote chapter 10. No, it's no contradiction at all to say that God has an elect people and how shall they hear chapter 10 without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the message of Christ. 
What's the message of Christ? Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's the gospel. The gospel is about a God who made man in his image. This man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, and everyone after them committed high treason against our great God. And rather than banishing all of them to hell, which he could have done, he so loved this world, he gave his one and only son. The second person of the Trinity came into this world, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, going to a cruel, rugged cross, and taking, absorbing in himself all the sins of all those who would ever believe. And rising again three days later, and in the place of all authority, says, repent and believe this good news, and you will have eternal life. Believe in me, and you will have eternal life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the message. Chapter 10 of John. Let's go to John chapter 10. Look with me in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you didn't believe. He's at it again, folks. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... Stop, 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 stop. Jesus. Can you take the words of Jesus? Jesus is about to tell them again why they don't believe. And it's consistent with chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God and you don't hear because you're not of God. Look at this. Look, look. Look at the text. I don't want to look at the text. No, look at the text. <laughs> you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. In my former understanding, which was not this, I thought, if you're not a sheep, you can believe and become a sheep. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Look at the text. The reason you don't believe is because you're not among my sheep. Wow. Sheep believe. And you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now in contrast, see verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Who's the them? The sheep. And they, who's the they, the sheep, will never perish. And no one will snatch them, who's the them, the sheep, out of my hand. There it is. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So they're in my hand, and they're in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out. I and the Father are one. We're one in this. We're one in mission. We're on the same course. And again, the Jews loved it. No, they didn't. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is not a popular message, especially when he's looking people in the eye. You and I can't do that. I can't say, you are a sheep, you're not a sheep. Jesus can. Jesus can. I preach to everybody. We're to preach to everybody. 
promiscuous, to use the right word there. We should be promiscuous with the gospel. Everybody gets the gospel. That should be our desire. Everybody hears it. We don't know who the sheep are and the good news is we don't have to know. We just need to know they're out there. And we've got that promise. So we preach the gospel knowing that the sheep may not have been acting like sheep. The thief on the cross with minutes to live didn't look like a sheep, but he was a sheep. And that gives hope to us. Till, uh, till someone's dying breath, they could be sheep. And it might be that you heard the gospel the first time and responded, but statistics say not everybody responds on the first time that they hear this. It could be the eighth time or the 37th time, or it could be right on a deathbed or right on a deathly cross that the Father draws them to the Son and they come willingly because he takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. And it's all a supernatural thing. It's not that there was music around the cross and that's what prompted the thief to do what he did. It was the act of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Out of nowhere, it seems. This one had been hurling abuse at Christ, and he then says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave him assurance of eternal life. Only the biblical Christ with the biblical gospel can do that. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the one next to him alone, Christ alone. Romans 8 says it. We don't really need to turn there. All those who are justified are glorified. Romans 8.30 Neither death nor life, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1 verse 6 I'm confident of this very thing that he who has begun the good work in you he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, if you performed it, if it was your act that got you in, I guess it's your act that can get you out. But because the faith you have is the gift of God, God will, not only with that initial gift of faith, give you an ongoing love for Christ, which is when you and I blow it, like Peter did, we come back. Otherwise this, Okay, you believe, but it's Sunday. Why do you think you'll still be believing on Thursday? Or ten Thursdays from now? Or a hundred Thursdays from now? Or a thousand? What if you wake up one Thursday and you lost that loving feeling? And it's gone. 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 Whoa, whoa, whoa. You see, if it's a feeling, you might wake up without it. Many couples wake up one Thursday and they say, I no longer love you. I did yesterday, it's gone. Here's what the faith that God gives is. It's a continual looking on the Son and loving of the Son, wanting to know His Word, wanting to walk in obedience with Him. And if you don't have that, it should send alarm bells to you to say, oh God, I need the real thing. We persevere because he preserves. It's the preservation of the saints.
go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Are you enjoying this or enduring this? <laughs> well, we haven't got to Hebrews yet. Oh, we'll get there. Maybe next week. Jeremiah 32. We're going to read some astonishing words. I'm going to jump right into it. Hopefully not taking it out of its context. Look with me in verse 38. Speaking of God's promise to his people. This is Jeremiah 32 verse 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is covenant language. There's a whole sermon series in just that statement there. Look at verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, not for a little while, forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them, that's the people of God, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now look at this. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe God, that God is able to do that? He can so put something in you that means that you'll stay on course, that you'll always love him. That's what we're reading. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the God of the Bible. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the God of the Bible. And he has the power to do this, and he does it in the life of his elect people. What does he do? He puts the fear of God in our hearts that we may not turn from him. That's what genuine saving faith is. The nature of it is an enduring trust in Christ. So, what about these warnings? The warnings we read about in Scripture. There's nothing frivolous about them. They're real warnings. Back to the book of Hebrews. You find that there are five main warning passages in Hebrews. And these are not things we can be flippant about. They're real warnings. We should not be reckless. I tell you what is reckless. It's the idea that just praying a prayer once means you're in no matter what. Praying the sinner's prayer. I prayed it at age eight. Oh yeah, I live like the devil now, but I'm okay because at age eight, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I signed the card. There's nothing of that in Scripture. We must profess faith in Christ, but we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, if we had true faith. And if you have true faith, you'll be trusting now. You'll be walking now. But there are so many people who believe a false message. There are parents who, you say these kind of things that you need to question your son or daughter's salvation. They say, no, he prayed a prayer. I was there when he did it, yes. But he's now a drug dealer and an atheist. That doesn't matter. He prayed a prayer. No, uh, true faith means that you'll continue believing. Judas, I'm sure, prayed a prayer. The professors professed, but they walked away. 
And Jesus' assessment was they were never true believers. 1 John chapter 2, on to the right in your Bible. 1 John chapter 2. Here we have people that were working with the Apostle John in ministry. We're not told what their titles were, but they were operational in the ministry that John had. But they left. And they didn't just leave and go to another church. They left the faith and now were speaking out against it. And what was John's assessment? Well, they were really true believers, but they lost their salvation. No, no, that's not what he does. Again, see the consistency of the Word of God. 1 John 2, look at verse 19. Talking of they, that's those who were once part of us, but now are not. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That's the Apostles John assessment. Not, they were the real deal, but they fell away. No, they walked away because they were never the real deal. They looked the part, they sang the songs, they preached the messages. They gave. They looked like the real deal for quite some time. But the reason we know they were never of us is they've walked away from us. They're no longer with us. They went out from us. That's a false teaching to say, pray a prayer and you're in. And it can damn the soul. There are people in certain parts of America, but I'm sure it's all around the world. They think they have salvation because the preacher said you're in, no matter what you do from here. Welcome to the family of God. So what do we do with these warnings? I'll tell you what we do with them. We take them seriously. And we'll end with this. Why would God give warnings if salvation cannot be lost? Here's why. The elect will heed the warnings. The elect will heed them. The non-elect will go on merrily. They'll not hear his voice and ignore the warnings. So, When God says, stay with Christ, keep pursuing him, or else, the elect say, I don't want the or else. uh, That's a means of me coming back if I'm even even straying a little. I've got to heed. I've got to listen. So God uses the warnings. And here's what we need to understand. Hebrews was, I believe, a sermon And when it's read to a congregation, it's like a congregation of our size. We cannot assume that everybody in this building is truly a sheep of the Lord. There will be true sheep, but there'll be those who are professors. Or else those who are in unbelief and they know it. And so you throw the truth out and you recognize that there are people with different heart conditions in a spiritual sense. But you say to everyone... Come to Christ, and if you 
Don't come to Christ or stay with Christ. There are warnings you need to hear. And God will use that as a means to cause his sheep to say, I've got to stop playing with sin. I've got to stop playing the game. Understanding that's the context of Hebrews. And we realize this, every gathering is a group and a group of different kinds of people. And so what the writer does is say, if you haven't come to Christ, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? That's Hebrews 2. They fell because of unbelief in the wilderness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Hebrews 6 speaks of those who are all around the things of God. But walk away, fall away. Don't be like that. The elect will hear it. So how about you? Without doing a whole lot of internal navel-gazing, do you love Christ? Well, I could love him more. Yeah, but do you love him at all? If you love him at all, it's because God has put love in your heart because you wouldn't love him unless he first loved you. Do you love the biblical Christ? Do you love the word of God? Do you love to hear what he has to say? Or are you flippant and say, there are areas in my life, I know Christ has said this, but I'm not interested. That should be an alarm bell. Don't look back on a life of 10, 20 years ago. I was really committed then, so that's good. No, where's your heart condition now? Heed the warnings. As we get to it next time, I believe with, with this template in place, it allows us to embrace everything the Bible teaches. We shouldn't be afraid of any verse in our Bibles, including what we're going to read in Hebrews 6 and study next time. So come to him. Come to him knowing that he is all he said he is and will do all he said he will do. And We command you to come, even though we know you can't come unless the Father draws, but should the Father draws, you're coming not only to Christ, but you're coming to Christ and all of the benefits of Christ, which includes eternal life now and forever. And Jesus, now that you realize you're a sheep, will never lose you. Because it's the will of the Father that you be saved and that he saves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great word, clear word. May we heed it and live in the good of it now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.